How is everyone doing tonight? Good. You're doing great? All right, so uh, we're continuing our uh, book study theme, but there has been a miscommunication from my side. And one time, I said, Marina, and I told her, you're going to give a talk to Marina. Out of my rush, Esther ولا روث جت في مخي كده Esther مش عارف ازاي يعني المفروض روث يعني so it's uh, it's it's a my my I know sequentially we should be doing uh, Ruth right now but I told Marina uh, Esther وبعدين the night before تلها إيراك تعملنا روث no 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 since you started Esther so we're gonna we're gonna go with the book of Esther so thank you Marina and thank you everyone. I hope that all of us enjoy. So let's give a round of applause and encouragement. <laughs> the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Okay, um, welcome everybody to today's meeting. So I wanted to start off by saying, first of all, I was very happy that Abuna accidentally told me Esther because I personally love the story of Esther. Um, I know that sometimes we look at the Old Testament and sometimes we might feel like it's a little bit harder to read or to relate to than the New Testament. Like, Sometimes we find that the New Testament is maybe more relevant or, you know, maybe the Old Testament. It's hard to understand how this relates to us today. But I think when we really look at the Old Testament all throughout, we can really see how a lot of the characters and a lot of the stories in the Old Testament allow us to both see how God reveals himself to his people. And we can see some of those characteristics of God. But also we look at a lot of the characters in the Old Testament and we can really see how, you know, we can... We can often relate to their shortcomings, but also learn from their strengths. So the story of Esther is no exception to that. Um, a lot to learn from this story. I, I personally find it a very encouraging story. Um, so um, we'll get started. Um, so a fun fact I want to talk about when we talk about Esther. Has anybody ever heard the story of Esther being referred to as the invisible hand of God? Has anyone ever heard that term before? Yeah? <laughs> okay, so fun fact, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, the story of Esther is the only book in the Bible where the word God is not mentioned. So this is something I've, I've heard before, and I actually, you know, double-checked, I control-left it on my, my computer just to make sure, and it's true. The name, the word God is not mentioned throughout the whole story. And that's really interesting, because if you think about it, if God is not mentioned, does that mean God is not present? Is his, you know, seemingly his silence, does that mean it's his absence? But that's far from the truth. And as we go through the story today, we'll see how, you know, at times where it seemed like God wasn't maybe doing much at that moment, uh, where it seemed like the situation didn't look so good, really he was behind the scenes orchestrating and working on behalf of his people. And, um, and yeah, we'll kind of go through that today. And, you know, as I mentioned, it is very relatable to us, and we'll talk about that a little bit more um, towards the end. So to start off with, I did want to give some background or historical context to the book of Esther. Um, so it is set in the Old Testament. Um, it's one of the only two books that are named after um, a female, the other one being Ruth. So it's set during the time of the Persian Empire's reign. So during this time, um, the, Israel, or the Jews were originally um, under the Babylonian exile. Then after that came a period of time where some returned to Israel, but a lot of them were still under um, captivity under the Persian rule. So during this time, the king that was reigning was King Ahasuerus, who ruled from 486 to 465 BC. So he was a very powerful king. Um, his kingdom spread over 127 provinces. So you know he had from Ethiopia to India. So and his kingdom was doing well at the time. It was thriving. 
Um, and he was at the time married to Queen Vashti, who we'll see later on is, is uh, a relevant character in the story. So the story takes place 100 years after the Babylonian exile, um, and it takes place in Persia, which is modern-day Iran today, the, the Susa of Persia, which is where the story takes place. The author of the story is actually unknown, um, so different sources cite different people for being the author. So according to St. Augustine, it was written by Ezra, um, but according to St. Clement of Alexandria, it was written by Mordecai, who is one of the main characters in the story. Um, and just something to mention, the story is 10 chapters. However, there are additional chapters on the uh, deuterocanonical books. Um, and it doesn't really change the context or any of the details of the story, just adds some background and you know, one of the chapters talks about a vision Mordecai had or just other details um, that are not in the 10 chapters. Um, so I do encourage you to check them out if you ever if you can. Um, okay, so we'll start off um, with introducing the main characters of the story. So there are four main characters. Um, so easy to follow in the sense that there's really four main people that we need to know in the story. However, the story is filled with a lot of plot twists, an unexpected turn of events, um, and lots of circumstances that you really wouldn't see coming as, you know, from the human perspective. So four main characters, um, so the first character is Esther, of course. Um, her name means star, and she is the star of the, the bulk of Esther. Um, so she was an orphan who grew up um, with no parents, and she was a Jew. Um, and she grew up raised by Mordecai, who was her cousin. Um, so they were both Jewish and, you know, the people of God. Um, king Ahasuerus, who we mentioned, who was reigning at the time, very powerful king, very wealthy. And then Haman, who is the protagonist, or sorry, the antagonist of the story, um, or the bad guy in the story. Um, and we'll, we'll kind of get to know the characters a little bit more as we go through the story. So I do want to start off by giving some background or a little bit of context to um, you know, what happened in the story, briefly kind of going over the main events in each chapter. I know a lot of you already know the story, so you know a lot of us are already familiar with how the story, um, you know, well, all the details in the story. But as we go through it, I encourage you to look at the story from two different perspectives. One, try to see in the story how, if you were part of the story, if you were one of the characters, how would you feel that maybe God is silent or God is not doing something? So try to see, you know, we know how it ends and we know that God was present all throughout, but look at that story from the perspective of I was there at the time, what would my perspective be? And the second perspective, I also encourage you to look at the story from the perspective of Mordecai. Um, and we'll, we'll touch upon why that's important. So those two perspectives as we, as we go through it. So chapters one and two, um, so this was a time where, as we mentioned, King of Persia, he's ruling, very powerful king, Kingdom is great, and he starts off by having a huge feast. So this feast is lasting 160, 160, 180 days, uh, which is six months, so very long feast. And of course, after six months of partying, drinking, celebrating, he ends it off with a seven day after party. So he's still celebrating six months after the original um, celebrations. So the purpose here, he's showing off his wealth, his power, he invites all his rich, powerful friends, and, and they're all you know, celebrating in the kingdom. And to end off this, this season of celebration, he wants to parade his queen, Queen Vashti. So he asks for Queen Vashti to come out um, to parade her, and she refuses. So of course, now the king is enraged. She's embarrassing him in front of all his rich, powerful friends. She's not coming out. And he decides that he's going to dethrone her. So Queen Vashti is no longer the queen, and now the seat of the queen is empty. So to fill this seat, um, a, beauty, a beauty pageant is held to find the new queen. Now, Mordecai um, you know, encourages or tells Esther to go and you know, participate in this pageant. 
And to no surprise, as we know how the story goes, Esther isn't selected. She's as the new queen. So the king is smitten by her. She wins the favor of the king, and she's the new queen. Now, chapter two ends off with an event which um, we'll later see on why this event is significant. But basically, Mordecai, who is now sitting outside the palace, so Esther's now the queen. She's inside the palace. She's on the on you know sitting with the king. Mordecai's still outside the palace. He overhears that two um, two of the royal officials are plan or two of the royal guards are pl plotting to murder the king. So of course, being the good guy that he is, decides to do the right thing, tell Queen Esther so she can warn the king. So she does the save the king's life, and the king documents this in the royal chronicles of the kingdom. So chapter three and four, um, and we are introduced to Haman, who is the bad guy in the story. And unfortunately, this bad guy has a lot of power. He's the right-hand man of the king. So he's elevated um, to a high position in the kingdom. He's given a lot of power. So with his power, what does he do? He demands that everybody bows to him. So, of course, Mordecai refuses to bow down to someone who's other than other than God. It doesn't say the word God because it doesn't mention God, but he refuses to bow down to Haman. Um, so Haman is, of course, enraged um, when he finds out that Mordecai is Jewish. So he wants to destroy not just Haman, but all the people. He's extremely upset and wants to get rid of these people who are not um, following you know the, what he had asked them to do they um they pass lots to pick the day of when they will destroy and get rid of all the jews and they decide that this day is 11 months um and it's going to be in 11 months so at this point uh, mordecai and esther well mordecai of course is enraged and and or he's very very um upset and very you know it, it talks about how he's outside in sackcloth mourning grieving and he sends a message to queen esther um, to do something about this. So after a period of fasting, um, Queen Esther comes up with a plan um, that she's going to reveal her identity to the king. So at this point, the king doesn't know that she's Jewish. So she's going to reveal her identity and ask the king to reverse this decree to destroy and to get rid of all the Jews. Chapter 5 and 6. Um, so after this period of waiting and this period of fasting, Queen Esther decides, okay, I'm going to invite the king and Haman, so both of them, to a royal banquet. And, um, you know, I'm going to tell them that I have a request to make. So she invites them to this royal banquet. And the king is, you know, very happy with his queen. And he says to her, anything you want shall be yours up to half my kingdom. So she says, okay, let's, you know, tomorrow let's come back and, and have another uh, banquet. And I will tell you what I want from you at this time. So um, the next day, um, or sorry, before the next day. So Haman and, you know, goes home and the king is going to sleep. On Haman's way home, he leaves the banquet, and again, he runs into Mordecai, who refuses to bow down to him. So at this point, Haman is even more enraged. You know, it just keeps happening that Mordecai is refusing to follow this order. So Haman decides that I need to not only wait, you know, get rid of these Jews in 11 months, I need to do something about Mordecai today. So he, or uh, sooner than the 11 months. So he decides that he's going to have... Um, a plan where he's going to build two tall gallows or two tall poles to kill um, Mordecai and to get rid of him. Um, that same night, the king has gone to sleep, but he can't sleep that night. So he, you know, when, when people can't sleep, they usually go to a bedtime story or something to help them sleep. So he decides to ask um, someone to read him the chronicles. Send them about Facebook. <laughs> yeah, they didn't have anything to scroll on, no TikTok, no nothing. What is the <laughs> So they had to go to books. Like, go, go, go to books these days. But, <laughs> um, 
Just maybe Twitter. We, maybe we should. <laughs> <laughs> it does work out, so maybe. <laughs> um, so the king has the royal chronicles read to him, and remember what we mentioned in chapter two? He, what he wrote in the royal chronicles at the time, he wrote about Mordecai who saved his life. So at this point, he comes across the story, and he's like, oh, wow, this man saved my life. What did I do to honor him? You know, And he realizes that nothing, nothing was done to honor him, nothing, nothing was done to thank him. So he puts it in his head, okay, I should probably do something to honor this man who saved my life. Um, so he takes Haman's opinion, and he says, hey, like, if you wanted to honor someone and really show them honor and glory, what do you think I should do? So, of course, Haman, being who he is, very full of pride and very self-centered, assumes what? He, he assumes it's about him. He assumes that the king wants to honor him. So, of course, he's going to go above and beyond and come up with the most elaborate plan. So he says, you know, if you want to honor someone, give him your robe, give him your horse, parade him in front of all the people, show him glory. And the king's like, that's a great idea. That's exactly what I'm going to do for Mordecai. So imagine Hanan's role at this or his position at this time. He's probably like shocked. Like not only is it not for him, but it's for the person he hates the most. Um, so, so that's how it kind of ends in, in chapter six. Going on to the next, um, the next chapters. Um, so at this point, remember we said Queen Esther met with them for the first banquet, and she said, I'll let you know my request tomorrow. So the, second, the day of the second banquet comes, um, and Esther informs the king that she's Jewish, and that man, the man that's his right-hand man with all this power, is the one who plans to kill all the Jews and to kill her people. Um, so the king orders that Haman to be killed on the same gallows that he made to kill who? To kill Mordecai. Um, so unexpected turn of events, as we as we saw, the story is filled with that. Um, and um, at this point, Esther and Mordecai then plan to reverse the decree to kill the Jews. So at that at this time, if a decree came out with the king, you can't just like get rid of it and say never mind. You know, the king changed his mind. It has to be something to change this. You know, it, it's not easy to change a decree that came out with the king. So in this case, rather than um, reversing the decree, they end up coming up with a new decree to override the previous one. So since it can't be revoked, the counter decree is that the Jews can defend themselves against anyone who tries to kill them. Um, and finally, the, day, the decree day comes, and the Jews, of course, triumph over their enemies. They destroy all those who plotted against them, and they establish the Feast of Purim, which is celebrated today by the Jews. And Mordecai is elevated um, second, to second in command in the Jews' thrive. So that's a brief summary of the story. Of course, going through the chapters, a lot of great context and a lot more um, details that I, I left out just for the sake of time. But as we go through the story, I wanted to focus on five main themes that we see here. Um, so the first theme that we see is the theme of obedience. Um, and we see it here through two different characters in the story. Of course, we see it through Esther, who, you know, throughout the story was very obedient to the person who raised her. Even when she's in a position of power, in a position of authority at this point, she's no longer, you know, she was raised by Mordecai's little girl as an orphan girl. She's no longer in that position. She's now the queen, but she still shows that humility and that obedience and continues to obey the commands of Mordecai um, as referenced in Esther 2.20. But also, we see Mordecai's obedience to God. Esther 3.2 reads, And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced him in. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor <clears throat> did him reverence. So from Mordecai's perspective, the situation didn't look good. It looked like not only were the Jews in trouble, but also he specifically was. So he was refusing to bow down to someone who had a lot of power, who could has the authority to destroy them. But Mordecai's main 
main concern here was not how do I strategically get out of this bad situation? How do I, maybe, maybe he could have been a little bit calculated and thought to himself, anytime I see him in, I'll just avoid him, then I won't trigger him, I won't upset him, and I'll, you know, I won't have to be in this mess. Or maybe he could have thought, you know, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll just bow down, which, you know, of course, was, was not something that he even considered, as we can see. But Mordecai was way more concerned with doing right in the sight of God. He wasn't concerned with how is God going to deliver us from, you know, we're in captivity, the Jews are in a bad season, um, him specifically, he's in a very bad position. He wasn't concerned with how will God show me his, his plan for me, or when, or why, why am I in this position, God? Why I'm refusing to bow down to someone who is against you? Why are you putting me in this position that's going to lead to my destruction? He wasn't concerned with any of the hows, the whats, the whens, any of that. He was really con concerned with what ought I to do and that's right in the sight of God. And, what, and he continued to show that obedience to God. So I think, as I mentioned in the beginning, the Old Testament is really relatable to us because sometimes we could feel like, okay, if I'm in a bad situation, I can sit here and try to analyze and calculate and, and orchestrate and think, how do I deal with the situation the best I know how? And that can sometimes feel very overwhelming. A lot of us sometimes say, why, what is God's will? Or when is God's will going to show? Or why is this God's will? But rather than focusing on all of this, we one way to know for sure that you're in God's will is if you show continuous obedience to God. If you're more concerned with what can I do today that's aligned with doing right in the sight of God rather than how do I figure out how this whole scenario is gonna, is gonna play out. Um, and we see Mordecai being such a great example of that. The next theme that we see here is the theme of trusting in God's sovereignty. So as I mentioned before, um, we, we, you know, Mordecai is a character that we would, it's, it's, um, it's great to look at the story from the perspective of Mordecai. We see here the concept of him trusting in God's sovereignty. So as mentioned, not only was the situation bad for the Jews, it was really bad for him specifically. Um, so of course, when the decree came out, as any human would be, Mordecai was very distressed. It reads here, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter. I found in Esther four one to two. So he reacted. Of course, this wasn't easy for him. It's not like you know. Sometimes we think in the Old Testament, the characters had a lot of faith or they trusted in God. And that must have been maybe easy for them, but today it's so much harder. No, he reacted the same way any, any of us would react. It's, it's not, you know, it's not easy to right away recognize that God is in control. Our first human reaction might be to see the situation from a human perspective. But just a few verses later, we see such a powerful statement and arguably one of the most powerful statements in, in, um, in the book and in the chapter. He says to Esther, so you know, we know at this point after he found out what's going to happen, he, Esther was informed, and he says to Esther, for if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You see the confidence in the statement there, like he says to her, whether you help us or not, deliverance will come. He doesn't say, you know, maybe deliverance will come, we hope deliverance will come. He's so sure in God's deliverance, and it's almost like how could he be so like sure and so confident in God's sovereignty at a time like this? From his perspective, he was always doing the right thing. He raised Esther, and he clearly did a very good job raising her Like from how she is as, as the queen. We see that he's built in her the integrity and the humility and the compassion for her people. So he raised her. 
he was always, you know, supporting her, rooting for her to audition for the queen, all of, and, 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 you know, always advising the king if there's harm coming to him, always doing the right thing. But yet he's found where? He's found outside the palace. The first verse there says he wasn't even allowed to enter the palace. So it's almost human nature. Maybe he could have felt like he was forgotten. Maybe he could have felt like he's doing the right thing all along, and he's not only not getting it rewarded for it, like the king totally at this point didn't acknowledge that he saved his life, but also his situation keeps getting worse and worse. Um, mm. Question. But, yes. Oh. <laughs> no, I thought, I, I just made a realization where in that verse, it even sounds like he has, like, compassion that he's worried about her perishing. Mm. Like, so there's even the part where he's saying, like, like, it's, like, for you, too. Like, mm -hmm. deliverance will come. Like, you might as well be part of the solution. Like, yeah. it didn't sound like he was, like, forcing her to do it, 100%. but it's more out of, like, concern for it like the person he raised as well. So it's the first time I've seen him. Yeah. Yeah. No, so yeah. Um, that shows another one of his, his you know, traits of always, of always doing the right thing. Um, so yeah, so just focusing on the character of Mordecai, as we've done kind of in the last um, couple of slides, not only is, you know, Mordecai such an underrated character in the story that I think doesn't get enough attention, but also, um, Mordecai actually symbolizes Christ in the story, and Haman symbolizes the devil. So think about it, and we'll, we'll look kind of what the Church Fathers have to say on about this, you don't take my word for it, but Haman does symbolize Christ in that, or sorry, not Haman symbolizes Christ, <laughs> Mordecai. Mordecai symbolizes Christ, um, and in, in that he was supposed to die, but instead he ends up sitting at the right hand where he sits next to the king. Um, can someone actually read this verse of this uh, quote from the Church Fathers for me, please? Yes. Mordecai also was persecuted as Jesus was persecuted. Mordecai was persecuted by the wicked Haman, and Jesus was persecuted by the rebellious people. Mordecai, by his prayer, delivered his people from the hands of Haman. And Jesus, by his prayer, de delivered his people from the hands of Satan. Mordecai was delivered from the hands of, of his persecutor, and Jesus was rescued from the hands of his persecutors. Because Mordecai sat and clothed himself with sackcloth, he saved Esther and his people from the sword. And because Jesus clothed himself with a body and was illuminated, he saved the church and her children from death. So do you guys see the parallel there? And like, throughout the story, we see how, as the story goes, we see how he symbolizes Christ. Haman fought it against Mordecai and prepared gallows to, um, to hang him, as the devil also manipulated the Jews to crucify our Lord. The gallows prepared for Mordecai ended up being the exact same gallows that were used for him, him and his destruction, um, just as our Lord's cross defeated Satan. And also Mordecai won victory and sat at the right hand of the king, as our, our Lord by the cross won victory over death and sits at the right hand of the Father. Um, and then... Um, so the church, the, the church fathers continue for another another quote I did want to mention because I do think it, it you know highlights a lot of um, details for this theme as well. Can anybody read this for me, please? Mordecai received the, received the honor of uh, Haman, his persecutor, and Jesus received great glory from his father instead of his persecutors who were of the foolish people. Mordecai trod upon the neck of Haman, his persecutor, and asked for Jesus, his enemies shall be put under his feet. 
Before Mordecai, Haman proclaimed, Thus shall it be done to the men in honoring whom the king is pleased. And as for Jesus, his preachers came out of the people that persecuted him. And they said, This is Jesus, the son of God. The blood of Mordecai was required at the hand of Haman and his sons, and the blood of Jesus, his persecutors, took upon themselves and upon their children. Gregory Degree. Thank you. So yeah, as we mentioned in the beginning, the Old Testament is filled with so many things to us that reveal a lot of things that sometimes we don't notice. Like I, I personally didn't know this before I, I prepared this over the last few days. But you know, as we go through the Old Testament, not only do we see as we talked about God working behind the scenes, but we also see more about um, you know how everything kind of points to the story of salvation. Um, and throughout the book, sorry, the font here is quite small, um, but throughout the book, there are so many. Um, parallels to Christ. So, you know, from the beginning, we see that Mordecai adopts Esther um, as his own child, the same way that God adopts believers into his family as his own children. Um, in Esther 3, we see that the king promotes, sorry, it's very small, the king promotes um, Haman the same way that um, Satan is, is, has the power to harm God's people. The, well, not harm them, but he has current, like he has power um, to, to execute harm. Um, here we see that Mordecai wouldn't bow down to Haman. This also foreshadows when Christ would refuse to bow to Satan while he was being tempted in the wilderness. In Esther 4, we see that when Mordecai finds out about um, the plan to, um, ex or to destroy the Jews, he weeps. Um, the same way we see that Jesus um, cried and wept at the Garden of Gethsemane. Esther 5, we see that Mordecai is, the plan is to hang Mordecai um, because the men you know, plotted against him, the same way we see how Christ would be hung on the cross. Chapter 7, we see that the man hanged on the, his own gallows that he prepared to destroy uh, Mordecai, the same way that we see that um, God can take Satan's practice schemes and use them for good. In chapter 8, we see that the king gives Haman's home to Esther, um, and the same way that this symbolizes that God will execute Satan and then give Satan domain in God's, uh, give Satan domain to God's children. Um, and then the chapter ends off with Mordecai being crowned the same way that Jesus will be crowned, is crowned by God. Chapter 9, um, we see that the Jews defeat their enemies. Um, and the same way this parallels how God and his people will be victorious over their enemy. And then, of course, chapter 10, we see how Mordecai is honored. Um, and this um, foreshadows how also Jesus will sit at the right hand of the Father. So I just thought that was um, interesting to, to highlight the parallels there um, from a Christology perspective. Um, okay, so coming to our third theme is the theme of compassion. So we see here um, how Esther had compassion both for Mordecai and her people. So even when she was in a position where she was comfortable, she was, you know, kind of, no one knew she was Jewish, so you could say that her, her she wasn't at as much risk as the people. She could have stayed silent or maybe felt that this wasn't really something that would directly affect her had she not said anything. But Esther continues to show compassion. Even when she hears that Mordecai is outside weeping bitterly and very distraught from this, um, she, faced, she, she, we see here in Esther, um, verse four, chapter four, sorry, verse, chapter four, verse four and five, um, that she, when she hears about this, she tells, um, she sends clothes for him to put on him instead of his sackcloth, 
and she summoned Hathet, one of her, the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend to her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. And I think the theme of compassion is so important for us to, you know, to, re to recognize here and to think about because so many times if, if we're in a position where we see those around us suffering or we see that there is something we can do for other people, sometimes we don't initially recognize it. And sometimes from a distance we might say, you know, have compassion on the people from a distance, but sometimes we don't actively act in a way to, to show our, our compassion to them. Um, you know, and then scripture commands us to do that, and it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn in Romans 12. So I think it's something for us to reflect on, and I don't think we, we choose to stay comfortable out of, out of being selfish or self-centered. It's more so sometimes we're just so preoccupied with our own lives that it's difficult for us to recognize where are opportunities for us to show compassion. Sometimes it could be something as simple as, you know, someone's going through a hard time to check on them. You know that there's something I can do to support someone who maybe doesn't have the support from other people. And and really, this could sometimes be God working through us for other people. And, you know, something that could be a very small gesture from our end can really go a long way for others. Um, so I think the theme of compassion here is something that's very evident in the book. And then, of course, if we're talking about Esther, the, the you know, this wouldn't be complete without talking about one of the very... Uh, famous and memorable verses from the book here where it shows her courage. Um, so Esther 4 verse 16 she says after she's um, heard about the news and she knows that it's her time to step in and do something. She's very courageous and with all bravery she says go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise and so I will go to the king which is against the law and if I die I die or if I perish I perish. So such a bold statement for her to make at this time. Not only was she about to go talk to the king and ask him to reverse a decree or to change a decree that he has publicly you know, stated, so that's risky in itself, but also at this point she's about to go to the king and reveal her identity as a Jew. So really, from a human perspective, the situation likely won't end well. Like now he knows the woman he was married to all this time. You know, it's very risky the position she's putting herself in. But still, with all... Um, courage and all bravery, she steps in and she's willing to do the right thing um, and, and kind of put her life on the line. And something also very important to note here is that she says she's going to fast and she's going to wait. Two things that arguably are very difficult to do, fasting and waiting. And I think the concept of waiting we see all throughout the Bible, and this could be a whole talk on its own, so for the sake of time, I won't focus too much on that. But Something I did want to mention is anytime we look at any story in the Old Testament or even the New Testament, we see that when God's about to do something really great or God's about to reveal himself, it's always followed or it's always after a period of waiting. It doesn't usually happen, you know, instantaneously. Even the resurrection was after a period of waiting. If you look at any story, Abraham, Joseph, David, any of the stories, there's always a period of waiting. And I think no one here is probably a stranger to a season of waiting. I think it's something everyone goes through at some point. And during the time, it's so hard to see how the situation will end. It's so hard to see, is God actively doing anything? Like from Esther's perspective and Mordecai's perspective, the situation is going from bad to worse. And really, it doesn't look like things are looking good for these people. But with all courage, Esther knows and has the confidence that with fasting and with waiting, God will reveal to her her next step. And it's only after this period of waiting and fasting that she comes out and she's very confident in what she's going to do. Like if Esther had thought of the situation any other way, if she maybe would have approached the king on the first day of the banquet, remember how we said they had the first day of the banquet, she didn't tell him yet, 
and she waited for the second day. What happened in between the first and the second day? That's when the king couldn't sleep. That's when the king read the chronicle, the royal chronicles and realized, oh, Mordecai is actually really great and I want to honor him. That's when he realized that this guy that he really wants to honor, the next day he finds out that Haman is trying to kill him. So had Esther not really surrendered her plan and her next step to God, she might have acted maybe impulsively. Maybe she would have said, okay, I'll just talk to the king right away or I'll, I'll act right now. But for her to know the right thing to do and for her to be able to see her role in God's plan, it was really you know, important that she takes that time of fasting and waiting for God to reveal that to her. And because of that, she's able to act so clearly and know her next step, and that plan eventually leads to the salvation of, um, of the Jews. Um, so kind of wrapping up here, we did start off by saying that this, is, this book is often referred to as the story of the invisible hand of God because it's the only book in the Bible where the word God is not mentioned at all. And now looking at the story, looking at how the whole story unfolded, if I would have asked you in chapter 3 or in chapter 4, 4 is when the, all this stuff happens, where is God in the story? Which we might have not been able to see at that. We might have not been able to see how God is acting, how this is going to end. If we were in the story, we might have even said, like, okay, yeah, we're, it's over for us. Like, this is not looking good. And, you know, maybe, maybe God has left us. Maybe God has forgotten us. But when we look at the story, at the end of the story, at chapter 10, we're able to see that God's silence did not mean his absence. God not doing things right now and right away and, and you know, speaking to, to you know, no vision came to them right away and said, don't worry, you're going to come out okay. It was really them holding on to that trust, them living that life of obedience or Mordecai, you know, always trying to do the right thing in the sight of God. Esther taking that time to wait on God and to fast and to surrender her plans to God that we're really able to see God's plan, plan prevail and how he's able to work in their lives. And to wrap up, I just want to show the contrast between how things looked from the human perspective at the time and how things actually were from God's perspective. So from the human perspective, Queen Vashti was the queen, and there was no plan for her to not be the queen. Like if I would have asked you at the time, who's going to be the queen in five months from now, everyone would have said Queen Vashti. So from the human perspective, Queen Vashti is going to remain the queen, and Esther is going to remain the orphan girl. But in God's perspective, no, Queen Vashti is dethroned, and Esther is the queen. From the human perspective, the king, um, the, Mordecai saved the king and he's not acknowledged. His good works are not acknowledged. But from God's perspective, Mordecai saved the king and is later remembered and rewarded and this is used as part of the story. From the human perspective, Haman is honored, so the bad guy is winning here from the human perspective. Therefore, he's going to have authority and he's going to execute his authority and he's going to do whatever he wants. But from God's perspective and God's plan, Mordecai is honored, therefore he gains favor in the eyes of the king. From the human perspective, Haman kills Mordecai on the two gallows, so not looking good for Mordecai. However, from God's perspective, Haman is powerless, or I think I missed a point there, but from um, God's perspective, Mordecai will be the one to die on the two gallows. From the human perspective, I don't know if I already said this one, but Haman is powerful and will conquer God's people. But from God's perspective, Haman is powerless and God's people will prevail. And then, of course, we see here that from the human perspective, it did not look good for the Jews. And the Jews will be killed because the decree could not be reversed, especially in the Persian Empire during that time. Once the decree came out, that's it. it was, whatever was in the decree was going, to, um, was going to be what was carried out. But from God's perspective, the Jews will be saved and the decree can be overridden. And 
I want to end off with something that King David said, and I think he sums it up so nicely. And he says here in the psalm, he will not let your, lip, your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will, will neither slumber nor sleep. And when you read this verse, you can replace the word Israel with you. So God, who is constantly watching over you, he will not slumber. And he who watches over you will neither slumber nor sleep. So even when it feels like, you know, maybe God's not actively doing anything in my life and it feels like maybe God's forgotten me or, you know, I, I can't really see him working in my life right now. Remember how in the story of Esther all throughout, it seemed that exact same way. It seemed that God is not doing anything. But looking back from our, the perspective at the end, we see how God was working all throughout and his fingerprints are undeniably shown throughout the story. And that's all I've got. say that a king's decree cannot be easily cancelled, mm. which is reminding me of the decree that Jesus tore on the cross. Mm. So we think that God's decree about death, why didn't God forgive? Why didn't God just go back? So, yeah. Because sometimes we wonder. So if earthly kings mm. have difficulty cancelling their decree, how about a divine and godly decree to be cancelled? It, it requires a lot of work. Yeah which is what happened, like here, the decree, it took a while and it took a lot of work to, to, to reverse the decree, which is exactly the work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross to cancel the decree of our sin and our death on the wood of the cross wow. as well. Yeah. So like the decree and the king cannot go back kind of struck me to hear it and link it to the parable. The, the, the parable. Yeah, yes. well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Any other comments? I'm not going to say questions, I'd rather hear comments. <laughs> yes. Um, like, what I really liked is just seeing that um, you would immediately think, like, Mordecai having saved the king, like, you feel like, like there's so much, like, injustice and, like, wow, like, he didn't even get rewarded for that. And it's, like, it's, like, the whole, like, concept of, like, yeah, but it was for a plan because he got mentioned and honored at a time where he needed it the most, where it's not like, it's not just about like getting honored, but it's that, yeah, like it's not about the right now. It's, it was when he needed it. And like the whole timeline of his life was like, we can't see it from an earthly perspective. Like we don't know like yeah. when that, it, that time is going to come when we need that. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, I love that. It's so true. Like Mordecai could have easily said, you know, I'm doing the right thing. It's not going acknowledged. What's the point? Or why didn't my reward come? But as Nancy mentioned, like it comes at the perfect time, which goes back to the whole concept of waiting and, and God's timing being perfect. Yeah. Uh, I just want to comment that, like, that comment you said that Queen Vashti was always going to be the queen. Mm -hmm. So then when Queen Esther became the queen, is that it's not all of a sudden she became the queen and then saved her people. Mm -hmm. It was that the Lord had planned far before her becoming a queen yeah. for her to save her people. So there's a lot of preparation work that came from God 100%. to to put into Esther mm -hmm. courage, bravery, and like maintaining integrity to her people that when she was a queen, she would be able to take that. So I feel like there's a lot of like pre-work mm -hmm. that went into the work that like the work of God. So 100%. you don't become a queen overnight. Yeah. You you become a queen 
as a work in progress. And once you, once you are a queen, you're able to execute God's plan because that's your role right there. Yeah. So I feel like when you look at her life, yes, she was an orphan girl, but the Lord takes nothing and creates wonders out of it. So where you come from is not necessarily where you're going. Where you come from is where the Lord chooses for you to be. Yeah. So I think that's a really good, like, practical point to take away in our in our lives. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that reflection, and I think we also see that with King David. You know, we see yeah. that it's not right away. You know, a shepherd boy is chosen to be king, and it's not instantaneously where he leaves his sheep and runs to the palace. We see, you know, as you mentioned, being so beautifully that God kind of primes them for what he needs from them and how he needs them to work on behalf of his people and at the perfect time. Exactly. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Any other thoughts, comments, or questions? <laughs> no? Okay. Thank you, Marie. Thank you. <laughs> Does not 